So this is the final sermon of the mirror series. This, this sermon title is it's called The Wedding for the Ages. We are going to be looking at Revelation. And we're going to be taking a look at the end times. We're going to take a look to see what lies before us in the future. And, and as we've been going through this series, it's been quite a ride to get to the state. And we've been in the series, I believe, at the start of January. Or actually, no, back in December, I think. And, and so it's, it's been, a, it's been a quite a you know, number of months that we have been in talking about marriage, talking about dating, and, and different topics that kind of stem from that as well. Uh, we've just kind of recap kind of what we covered in this series. We, we, we started off with Genesis, right? Genesis 1 and 2, the foundation of what it means uh, to, to get married. Right? God instituted marriage in the beginning when he created man and woman in his image. And he says, go, go and be of one flesh. Leave your parents, cleave to one another. And this is how you are to bear my image to the rest of the world. And so through image, through marriage, we see two people become one flesh, a relationship that's unbreakable, that's committed, that's pure and faithful. A husband and a wife, a man and a woman, joined together in, in, in holy matrimony, two individuals created differently and uniquely and yet joined together in perfect unison. And so we looked at this. We looked at what it means to be a one flesh. We talked about biblical manhood and womanhood. And we looked into principles of how to actually date, how to build a relationship for marriage. And we also see that in, in Genesis 1 and 2, that marriage is also a means for procreation, a means to, a means to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the image of God. And so marriage then becomes the fundamental building block of, of society. And so when marriage breaks down, that, build, that, that building block breaks down as well. Society crumbles without marriage. And that's a danger that we face in our culture today, right? We understand that marriage indeed is a gift. It's a gift from God that we ought to enjoy. It's, it's supposed to be a joyous occasion. Marriage is meant to be good. And yet we find that in our sin, in our weaknesses, we, we face difficulties in marriage. Right, we face difficulties in relationships where we have these doubts, we have hesitation, we have weakness. And for some of us, maybe we long for marriage, and yet we can't seem to hold a steady relationship. Other of us may be running away in fear of committing to something so heavy, so long-term. Then there may be some of us who may be dealing with just broken relationships, whether that's with a breakup or going through a conflict. And we see that marriage indeed doesn't solve our problems. It, it actually might even open up a whole new world of hurts. And so marriage in this fallen world sometimes just doesn't seem to be worth the trouble. And so we tackled that. We talked about singleness. We talked about conflict resolution. And we see how God is the solution to it all. And so we cover all these different topics. We cover different aspects of these topics. And, and there's so much more that we can cover, right? We can be talking about marriage for years on end. But tonight, we are going to conclude our time together talking about this. And, it, and it's not like this series will go away forever. It will come back, you know, in a year or two. I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. God, God knows what's in the future. But tonight, we are going to end our time in this marriage series. And what I want to do tonight is I want us to... I want us to take a step back and I want us to consider the big picture. I want us to think about God's plan for your life because God indeed has a plan for your life. And that means that your life has a purpose and that's a good thing. Everything that you do, whether you're married or you're single, has a purpose. And that purpose is to indeed praise the glory of God. Praise the glory of God. In other words, your purpose is to worship. And, and this is important for us to take a look at the big pictures because sometimes we get stuck to the day, but in the day-by-day -day motions. 
right? When we, when we go through the motions of the weeks, the days, every day can feel the same. Every day can feel the same. And yet every day can still bring its own challenges, right? And we can think about this, not even just in a sense of work or habits or schedule. We can think about this in the sense of our, even our emotions, Right. Consider how it feels like to be lovesick, right? You have like a crush in front of you and you, and you just don't know what to do. And you end up just, you know, you end up daydreaming about your crush. Um, and, and, and it happens, you know, from the moment you wake up to the, to the evening time when you put your head down, right? your, your mind is constantly going back to that. I mean, when, I, when you're infatuated with someone, how many times do you catch yourself like checking your phone, you know, to see if that person texts you or not? It's it's just it's on instinct. It's on our minds. It's because our emotions are driving us. And, and many times, what happens is that those emotions and thoughts, as, as the days go on, seems to be dragging you along, and it feels heavy. And we get stuck in the day by day motions, and everything feels so tangled up. One that our emotions, our thoughts, our our our, our actions, our our eating habits, sleeping habits, everything, and, and it may feel like that as all this is going on, what, what is the point of all this? Why does this all matter in my life? But I'm here to remind you that God matters. God matters. And he has a purpose for you. And, and, and so your everyday actions, your everyday thoughts and emotions, all of this has a purpose. And, and it's good for us to sometimes take a step back from all of it to take a look at the big picture, to remind ourselves what all this is about, that there is indeed a goal and purpose to this madness. And that's what this sermon is about. And so take your Bibles then, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Revelation, Revelation, without an S, there's only one Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 through 10, and we're going to take a look at this passage, and this passage here is, is a great passage. It's a passage that I actually wanted to be uh, to be our wedding passage, um, and unfortunately, um, because my wedding was a COVID wedding, we just cut it short, told, um, told our, uh, Pastor Hanley to, to just, you know, you don't have to preach a whole sermon on this passage, uh, just just do whatever you want to do for, for 15 minutes. And, and so I'm just taking the opportunity now to preach the passage I wish I heard at my wedding. And so we have here Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And we have here a grand description of the heavenly, the heavenly wedding that awaits all believers. The wedding itself, the wedding itself, though, is not the main point of this passage. The main point of this passage is to worship God. So worship God. And so worshiping God, we are to worship God because God himself will bring to conclusion his redemptive plan. And that's what we'll see here in Revelation 19. That in this passage, you will catch a glimpse, a glimpse of three final outcomes of God's work here on earth. You will catch a glimpse of three final outcomes of God's work here on earth. And these glimpses are meant to bring you to worship God. So let's read this passage. I'm reading from the ESV. This is God's word. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The first, the first glimpse that we see here is God's ultimate judgment. God's ultimate judgment. Let me give you some context to our passage. Um, in Revelation, there's a lot of context to go through, and that'll take another, you know, three sermons to cover it all. And so let me just give you a quick look at this context of what's going on here. First, the, the writer of Revelation, if you guys don't know, is, is the Apostle John. He's one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus, part of his inner circle. And, he, and Apostle John was one of the last, was the last of the 12 disciples who died. And it, is, it was believed that he, that this, that the Apostle John, he actually received this prophecy. He received this prophecy during his exile in, his, in the final days of his life. And, and so John, he wrote down this prophecy, and he wrote it down as a letter. He, it, it, this revelation is indeed is a prophecy, but it's also an epistle. It's a letter. It's a letter written to the churches. And, and he writes all this down, hoping to encourage believers to, by, by encouraging them and exhorting them to remain faithful. And he wants them to remain faithful because the end is certain. And God will bring to conclusion his plan, his redemptive plan for this world. And so what we are dealing here with, with in Revelation, I believe, my view of Revelation is that these here are future events. We're dealing with future events. And what we see in Revelation, if you ever read through it, John's vision is, is horrifying. Right, we see the day of the Lord coming, and, and there's just these dark descriptions, dark times ahead of us. And God, it says that God will put this world through a seven-year tribulation. And within those seven years, there will be earthquakes, there will be thunder, there will be plagues, there will be destruction everywhere. And also within those seven years, there will also be a great apostasy, meaning there will be a great deception. And an antichrist figure will rise up, and this antichrist and this antichrist figure will claim to be God and deceive men, many people, deceive many people to follow him instead of God. And it's during these seven years, it may seem like that it may seem like the wicked have won. But in chapter 18, the, the, the chapter right before our passage. Chapter 18 presents the fall of the wicked, the fall of the wicked empire that was that's going to rule this world. And John here calls this empire Babylon. And Babylon, and, and if you guys know your Bibles, Babylon was actually an Old Testament empire that, that enslaved Israel. And so using this name Babylon is to invoke those same images that, that Babylon is going to enslave this world control it, have rulership over it. And what happens here in chapter 18, Revelation 18, is that Babylon falls. God wins because God's judgment against Babylon comes and no one can escape God's judgment. What we see here is God's ultimate judgment. Uh, take, take a look with me real quick back in chapter 18, uh, verse 21. Verse 21 to 24, this is the judgment given to Babylon. It says this, Revelation 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. 
and the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. We see here Babylon was indeed a wicked nation that deceived many and killed many saints. But, but it will fall. And it will be heard from no more. And that is what John here is referring to in chapter 19, verse 1. He says, after this, after this fall of Babylon, this great judgment, after all of this, says here, verse 1, John heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. This here, we, we, it's, it's, it's a roar of applause, a roar of cheers, right? It's, we hear, we're hearing a chant, we're hearing a song come out out of nowhere. This here is the reaction of the saints, the reactions of the saints to God's judgment. And the saints here are saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. This phrase, hallelujah, is repeated several times in our passage. And what hallelujah is, it's a, it's a Greek word. And it's actually a Greek tran, uh, transliteration of a Hebrew phrase. And that Hebrew phrase means praise Yahweh. And so the saints here in Revelation 19 is saying, and when they're saying hallelujah, they're saying praise God. Praise God. Why? Because salvation, glory, and power belongs to him alone. We are, we are talking about here an almighty God, a powerful God, the most powerful being that we can ever imagine. This is the sovereign one over all things. Nothing can compare to this God. Nothing is above our God. And God here demonstrates, God here demonstrates his salvation, his glorious power. And it says here in verse two, that he demonstrates it through his true and just judgments. True and righteous judgments. And here we see that God's judgment here is not corrupted. It's righteous and true. It's without any bias or error. God's judgment is fair. And the other thing about God's judgment is that no one can question it. No one can stand up against it. Right, when we think about court cases here on earth, right? human court cases, human judges, human judges can, can, can accidentally, mistakenly charge an innocent man as guilty. Or, uh, or a human judge can acquit a guilty person to be set free. But God here, God can never make a mistake in his judgment. God is omniscient God, meaning he knows all things. He knows every fact. He knows every thought, every motive, and every person. And so he carries out judgment in pure righteousness. This is God's ultimate judgment. And look here who God judges. It says here that God judged the great prostitute. And this prostitute here, the prostitute here refers to Babylon. Um, we see this back in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, where it says, when talking about the prostitute, it says, on her forehead, on the prostitute's forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abomination. This great prostitute is Babylon. And that means when this God here is judging this great nation that's ruling over the earth at this time. And we see here that this great prostitute, as she has ruled over this earth, she has corrupted this earth. Corrupted this earth, tempted people away from God. People followed her willingly. They did that because they desire what this great prostitute promised. It promised a world without God. 
That's what sin does, right? Sin promises a world without God. And it can be argued, it can be argued that even today, we are facing shadows of this future deception, right? In our culture today, we, we see here how our society and our Western society is, try, is doing everything it can to redefine marriage and family. It has reversed the roles of husbands and wives. It has made sex a commodity outside of marriage. It, it, it looks upon infants, children as a burden instead of a gift. It gives authority to teenagers over their parents. We see in our society today, even divorce being celebrated. And what's hated by our society today is traditional Christian values of marriage and family. Those values, traditional Christian values, they're considered as, they're considered as oppressive and wrong. And I'm not saying that our society is what Revelation here is talking about. Uh, Revelation, again, is about future events. So this is about a future nation, future time of deception. But I would, I, I would argue that what we see in our world today, what we're witnessing is a foreshadow of what's to come. Foreshadow. Because this is what sin is like. Sin is going to be sin. Sin is the same today as it will be in Revelation. Sin seeks to unravel God's creation and claim it as its own. And so we see here, God, God sees the sin of this world. And how does he respond? We see here, God responds in judgment. Responds in judgment. And he would judge this world of its immorality. And moreover, it says here in verse 2 at the end that, that he, would, he would avenge the blood of his servants. Avenge the blood of his servants. This, this brings us back to earlier in Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, where we see the picture of the martyrs. Right, Christian martyrs crying out to God, saying, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And back in chapter 6, the answer was, not yet. But now here in chapter 19, God says it's time. He will avenge the blood of his saints and this is the very cry that we must have now when we see the immoralities of this world. Our hearts should break when we see the wicked prosper. Our hearts should break when we see, when we see things like homosexuality and transgender gaining popularity and deceiving many of our youth. Our hearts should grieve when we see and we see marriage counselors encouraging couples to seek divorce rather than reconciliation. Our hearts should mourn over the millions of lost embryos through abortion. We should all be crying out, how long, Lord? How long before you judge these acts of immorality? Because really the only person with an answer to these to this wickedness is God alone. And God's answer is found here in Revelation 19. He will judge the world and avenge his saints. And, and, and because of that, we give them praise to our God. We give praise to our great and mighty God. We sing praise to him and we, we continue to cry out to him. And look here in verse three, it says, once more, they cry out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, what we see here is the smoke. It's, 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 an, it's an internal reminder that God's judgment here is ultimate. The smoke here rises forever. It doesn't fade away. It, it, the smoke serves as a memorial of God's judgment against sin. And we see here that, that this is the only reaction that we can have to God's judgment is praise. And in verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down 
worship God who is seated on the throne and they say, Amen, Hallelujah. That's the only reaction we can have before God's ultimate judgment. Next, we will see God's eternal kingship. God's eternal kingship here, God's judgment against the wicked does not leave us, the believers, the church to do whatever we want. Instead, God's judgment reminds us that we too are under God's rule. We see that in verse 5, from the throne came a voice and here's command to the saints, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. We get here that there is this there is this, this voice addressing the saints, addressing believers that all of us, both small and great, are to praise God. This, is, this means the entire church, the saints of all ages, from the unknown Christian to the Billy Grahams of our world. And, we, and it says here, all those who fear him. And here the kind of fear we're talking about is a holy fear. A fear that stems from humility, all and weakness, all put together in one. This is a fear that's unmatched and unrivaled, a fear like no other, right? When we can understand fear, right? Think about, think about the fear you feel when you're swimming in the ocean and suddenly and you're, and you're swimming in the ocean with a shark nearby, right? Think about the, the fear you have then, right? You're, you're fear the shark because this creature is bigger and faster than you, stronger than you, and this creature can destroy you. Or think about a fear that you, that, that you feel when you get pulled over by, by police. You get pulled over by police and they begin asking you questions and you, you, you start getting nervous, right? And there's this fear of, there's this fear of status because you recognize that the police officer has authority over you. Or think about the fear that you may feel when you get to meet your celebrity crush and your, your tongue gets tied, and you're, you have a nervous and sweaty handshake, and you can't say a word. This is a, a fear of awe. Right? So we, we understand these different kinds of fear that we may feel, but the fear of God is a holy fear. It's a, it's a fear that combines all these different kinds of human fears that we have, and it's, set, and it, and it, and it's combined together because God is more than all of that. Right, this is a fear that's unmatched and unrivaled because God is almighty. He is powerful. He is the judge. All glory and honor, all power belongs to him. Not only that, God is also righteous and true. He cannot be denied. God is just much greater than all of our fears combined. God is the ocean to our sprinkled water. God is the sunlight to our flashlights. God is the Mount Everest to our little speed bump. God is just simply immensely bigger, stronger, and wiser, higher and better than us in every way. He is God, the creator of this universe, the Alpha and the Omega. And we, we are his servants. We are his servants. And so praise then this God, all you who fear him. Praise our God. And so in the next verse, John hears the saints. The voices of the saints rise up. We see that in verse, verse 6, right? A voice of a great multitude. And we, and we see here voices rising up in unison, building up on top of one another. Like, it's, it's like a stadium full of fans just screaming at the top of their lungs and it rises up it rises up like the roar of a waterfall like a collapse of rolling thunder it simply echoes but these echoes they don't seem to fade these echoes instead seem to keep swelling up with energy and they all cry out in verse six hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. He reigns. God reigns and he will always reign. He has always been reigning since the beginning of time, since eternity passed. And, and God reigns. 
And yes, sin indeed has rampaged through this world. Sin has indeed undo much of what God has created. But yet God remains sovereign. He is still indeed the king. God reigns. And how many times then, how many times do we need this reminder? How many times do you need this reminder that God reigns even right now? Because God, the, the, the kingship of God, the sovereignty of God should be a comforting and, and yet exhilarating truth that we all need to bear. God's reign brings comfort and joy to his servants. And when we think about God's sovereignty, consider it. Does this truth of God's sovereignty give you comfort when your world seems like it's falling apart around you, spinning out of your control, when you feel like, you know, even though you're doing the right thing, nothing seems to be going your way. Does God's sovereignty bring you comfort? Or, or, or does God's sovereignty bring you excitement? When, when, you, when you look upon your life and you look upon this world and you, you have this pure joy of knowing that the sovereign good God is indeed in control. Do you feel joy when you think about God's sovereignty? Does God's sovereignty bring you confidence? Confidence when you come face to face with a difficult decision. When, when, when obedience seems to call forth a strong act of faith and you feel so weak, do you remember that God still reigns? See, see and look at these saints in heaven. Right? These saints in heaven, they see God reigning on his throne and they can do nothing else but say hallelujah. Praise God. Let us worship him. And so God's kingship, right? God's eternal kingship here, it has direct implications to our lives even today. Even for many of us here, when we're talking about dating and marriage, it has God's sovereignty has direct implications to even that. Did I mean, I don't know how many guys grew up in the household. I remember I had this in my own home. Don't know how much my parents actually looked at it or they, they just bought it, but there's a plaque in my home that, that will say that Christ is the head of this house, right? Christ is the head of this house. Uh, and the, the, that statement stems from the foundational doctrine of God's sovereignty. Christ is the head, the king, the divine authority over the household, over the family, over the marriage. And so when we consider God's God reigning here, it has everything to do with dating and marriage. Because everything that we learn in this series must be done must be done under the authority and kinship of Christ. All of it. You don't just get married for the sake of getting married. You get married to honor Christ. And as a husband, you lead and you love your wife as Christ did for the church. And as a wife, you submit to your husband as unto Christ. And even when we talk about reconciliation, right? You reconcile, you do it in submission to Christ's reign over your life. All of it has done under the authority and sovereignty of Christ. God's reign here reminds you that your life, your actions, all that you do here on earth has a greater purpose than just finding a spouse. You are made to serve and worship this great king and so we see here that the lord our god the almighty reigns and then we come upon the wedding day and we see here god's finished salvation god's finished salvation and we reach here the apex moment of joy and worship in heaven uh, here is the, the scene that, that we all have been waiting for. God, God up to this point has judged the world. He has cleansed it of its sin. He has established his reign over all things. Also that we can come to this moment here when Christ and the church can be united in marriage forever. This is the wedding for the ages. 
Now, I want us to note here in verse 7 what, what's being emphasized, right? In verse 7 it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Uh, here in verse 7 is talking about our righteousness before God, that we, the church, the, the church, Christ's bride, has made herself ready. In other words, we're, we are to prepare, prepare ourselves for this day. We're, 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 we are to be faithful today because our faithfulness today is what prepares us, that makes us ready for this wedding day. This is what we're going through right now. To, to become a Christian is, is almost like getting engaged. You, you, you're now just to stay faithful in this relationship. You belong to Christ, but you're not yet with him for eternity. Right? Our time here on earth as a Christian is almost like us being engaged to Christ, up preparing, us, preparing ourselves for this grand wedding day. And so we do that. We're asked to endure through trials and temptations. We're asked to wait patiently for the Lord. We're asked to remain faithful to the end. And this right here is the end. There is hope. There's a certainty at the end. But but note here in verse 8 that this righteousness is also not our own. It's not our own. It's, it's instead, it's Christ's righteousness. Because it says here in verse 8 that it was granted her to clothe herself. Right? It was granted. It was given to her the ability to do so. Well, we, we cannot remain obedient to God on our, own, on our own ability, on our own strength. But instead here, it says here that it is granted to us, given to us by the grace of God to clothe ourselves. And so here we see the whole concept of that song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And when we see here, this, this clothes that we put on, this, this linen, it's, called, it's a fine linen, bright and pure. And it says that this fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And what we see here is that this, this linen, this, it's been given to us to clothe ourselves. It's been given to us. And what this is, is Christ's righteousness imputed to us Christ's righteousness imputed to us because on our own our clothes are just wretched we can't put on this type of fine linen that's bright and pure All right in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 it says that our righteous deeds are like polluted garments our righteous deeds are like polluted garments and yet here here it says that the final thing we put on are indeed a righteous deed to the saints. What change? It is Christ. Christ gave us his righteousness. He has credited to us his righteousness so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see us as sinners, but he sees us as righteous before him. Christ's righteousness has paid off our debt, and we now gain the ability to clothe ourselves in Christ, in righteousness, in this fine linen that's bright and pure, in righteous deeds. And we see here that the bride of Christ stands in contrast with the great prostitute earlier. Right. The prostitute is unrighteous and defiled. She corrupted the world's immorality. She deceived others and waged war against God. But the church here, Christ's bride, is righteous and pure. She is the one that performs righteous deeds that benefits others. The church stands before God and seeks to be united with him forever. And this is all, this is all good news because this is all a fulfillment of promises God has made. That God has made even back in the Old Testament. If you want to turn with me, Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 talks about this future wedding day. God has promised this back in the days of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 61 
we see here Isaiah prophesizing about a future time when God will make all things right and his people, God's people, will experience joy everlasting. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. We see here that God fulfills this in Revelation 19. That the majestic king, the almighty king who rules over all things. We see here that he fulfills this. And, and what's more about this is that we see here that this great and mighty king who rules over all creation. He's also a personal groom to us. A personal savior to us. A personal friend to us. What that means is that God is not just this king who is impersonal, but God, God rejoices at being your savior. God rejoices at being your savior. It's just like how a groom will brighten up when he sees his bride coming down the aisle dressed in this white dress, clothed in white, and, and the, the, his bride's beauty just radiating, filling the room, and all eyes are upon her, he, and he swells up with pride and joy. In the same way Christ looks upon you, he is filled with that same joy and pride. Isaiah 62 verse 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So God rejoices making you righteous. That is amazing. When God clothes you in his beauty and his glory, he does it so that you will be radiant for this day. Truly at this point, Revelation 19, when we are clothed in, clothed in this fine linen, bright and pure, at this point, mankind becomes the true image of God. And here's the thing. Christ bought his bride with a price. Because we, we were all once... Like the great prostitute, we were all once immoral, sinful, and the enemy of God. We were once all unfit to be the bride of Christ. But Jesus Christ, he did not move on from us. Instead, he committed his life to save us so that we may be sanctified, fit to be his beautiful bride. And that's where we get this beautiful picture in the well-known passage in Ephesians chapter 5, where we see what Christ has done for the church. And it says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ makes that Christ might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that I present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ sacrificed his life so that we may look radiant for this, for this wedding day. He delights in sanctifying you. He delights in sacrificing himself for you. He does it with a joy. So that, so that we may be with him on this majestic day. This is what all earthly weddings and marriages point to. Our, our earthly marriage is indeed good. It's a good thing. It's a gift. It's meant to be enjoyed. But it is still just a taste of what is to come. A taste. A small taste. A, a sample. 
We are to pursue then our earthly marriage in light of this grand marriage waiting ahead of us. And when we are able to do that, when we're able to pursue marriage in light of this truth, man, then you will find more joy and peace in your marriage today because you will soon realize that even our earthly marriage is ultimately not about you. It's not about your spouse. Marriage ultimately is about God. The glory and beauty of God, the, the glory and beauty of God's love, his faithfulness, his salvation. This is what all believers, whether you're single or married, this is what all believers look forward to. This is our hope and our reward. And we see here back in Revelation 19, verse 9, we see here it says this. And then the angel said to me, John, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't miss out on this. And so our reaction to God is simply to worship him, to worship God. And we see here in verse 10, John's natural reaction is to simply worship God. It's, he, he, he falls down and he falls down at the feet of, this, of a messenger and starts worshiping this message that was given to him, this great prophecy, this promise that was so spectacular, so joyous, so too good to be true. John could do nothing else but to give praise. But the angel here responds to John reminds John that I'm just a messenger. Don't worship me. I, I'm a fellow servant like yourself. Instead, worship God. And worship God we shall do. Worship God is what you are called to do. All of you who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ, worship God. Oh, we, when we talk here about the testimony of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the gospel. And when we see here that the gospel is not just the cross, the gospel is not just sins forgiven, the gospel is not just entering into heaven, but the gospel here, the testimony of Christ is God's redemption story. His redemptive story of bringing all of creation back under his rule to judge sin, to punish evildoers, and to bless those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. So the gospel here is about you putting on the righteousness of Christ and preparing yourself for that final day when God's redemptive story is finished and we can rest in joyful bliss with our Lord and Savior. Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And if you're here tonight, you are not a believer. You do not know Christ. I want you to know that this invitation to this, to this marriage supper, to this wedding, this invitation is still open today. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time for you to put your faith into Jesus Christ, to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now is the time for you to repent of your sins and to cling to the righteousness that Christ offers through his blood. He died so that you may be saved. And he died so that you may join him on this wedding day to be united with your Savior for all eternity. This, this is the great reward. And so the big idea of this passage is that the grand wedding feast described here is the culmination of God's work of redemption, his ultimate judgment, his eternal kingship, and his finished salvation. And the application here, the application really for the entire marriage series is to pursue marriage in this fallen world with your eyes fixed upon the reward of being married to Jesus Christ for all eternity. This is what we all look forward to with hope. So let us live our lives in preparation for this day, this grand day, 
when we get to experience the wedding of a lifetime, the wedding of all ages, a wedding where we meet our Savior face to face and we know he loves us because he died for us. What, what a great husband we will be all married to and for all eternity. So with that, let me go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you with absolute joy and delight, knowing that this, this promise here, this, this revelation, this prophecy is certain and true. And it will be fulfilled because you sent your son to die on the cross, guaranteeing us our salvation. Lord, what a joyous occasion. And so, Lord, let us then look forward. Let us keep our eyes fixed upon this future day when we get to be with our Lord and Savior, when we get to be with Christ, your son. God, help us then in this time to cling to righteousness to be clothed in righteousness, to remain faithful to the end, to do good works. Let us also live our lives as a testimony of Jesus Christ, a witness of his glory. Let us live our lives so that the gospel may be proclaimed, so that more and more people will be invited to this marriage supper. Let us live our life so that you are glorified, so that we can all join together with the multitudes of voices and say hallelujah. Lord, be with us then as we all wrestle with day-to-day situations, as we wrestle with, with, with our jobs, with our families, with our living situations, as we wrestle with dating, wrestle with marriage, and, and all these other kinds of decisions that we just feel totally incapable of doing, as we deal with our day-to-day lives, let us remember that you are indeed sovereign and that, Lord, you care for us. You will guide us every step of the way. Let us remember the most important truth from this series that, God, you are in control. And your will is good. So be with us now. Be with us tonight as we continue in our discussion groups. Let us continue to have a good time of fellowship. Let us continue to worship you in all that we do. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.